All right, we're glad that y'all are here today. I, I love coming to church here. I got to tell you that much. Uh, wow. <clears throat> there is a saying in the Navy, I'm told, that is goes something like this. If you can keep your wits about you or keep your head when everybody around you is losing theirs, you may not understand the, search, the situation well. And uh, that kind of fits a uh, story that uh, actually appeared in Reader's Digest a number of years ago now. And uh, it seems that these two guys were buddies and they were uh, decided that they wanted to be long-haul truckers. And so they went to take the class together and the training and all of the stuff to get the CDL and all of that. And at one point, the instructor is kind of testing their knowledge to see what they know. And he says to one of them, okay, here's the situation for you. Tell me how you respond. He said, you have been given a contract and it's a cross-country thing. And so you, you have to uh, team up with another driver so that you can keep the rig running. And one of you sleeps while the other drives and keeps in within the laws and all of that. And he said, and so you find yourself in the uh, mountains of Colorado. And as you're making your way through, you top a hill or this pass, and you start down, and you realize that you're losing your brakes. Your partner is asleep next to you, and uh, as you're gaining speed, you're figuring out what you're going to do, and no brakes, and so you start having to pass people kind of wildly, and uh, you come to this point, you round a corner, and you see coming at you a whole string of big rig trucks just like yours. What do you do? And uh, this guy said, I'll tell you, it's easy for me. I'm going to wake my partner up. And the, uh, the instructor says, why would you do that? He said, because my partner always wanted to see a good truck wreck, and he's fixing to see one that's going <laughs> to take his breath away. Take your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 1. Here's the deal. Every one of us will face crisis. Matter of fact, in a crowd like this, there's a better than average chance that there's at least one family facing a crisis today. My suspicion is that there's more than one family, that there are many of us that face crises during this Christmas season. The reality is, if you're not in a crisis now, you better buckle up because there's one coming right down the line and it's headed for your house. Reality is crises are just part of life for us. And we have to learn how to handle the crises that we face. And one of the realities that I want us to see from the front side of it all today is that how we respond to crisis reveals our character and our faith. Let me bounce that off of you one more time. We're going to get to it several times through the course of this message. The way we handle the crises of our lives... Reveals something about who we are and about what we believe. We have two examples of that today. We're doing our Christmas character series where we're taking a fresh look at the Christmas story. This is one of those things that I, I think is, uh, it's really important for us from time to time to just kind of stop, especially during a season like this where we all know the story. And a uh, matter of fact, we get bent out of shape when people outside don't uh, treat the story the way we think it ought to be treated and give it the kind of influence that it ought to have. Um, but the reality is that we often just get so familiar with it that we just skim across the top of it. 
So what I want us to do this Christmas season is slow down and dig in a little bit and find ourselves in the story. How we respond to crisis reveals something of who we are and our faith. And in today's passage, we find two different guys who, under normal circumstances, we would think never would have any way that their lives would correspond in any way. But both of them find themselves in a crisis. First is Joseph. Matthew chapter 1. We're in verse 18 through 25 this morning, or at least that's where we're going to start. But I I just want to start off with verses 18 and 19. Matthew chapter 1. And now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Lunch is on, apparently. All right. Back to verse 18. Now Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. All right. Thank you. Wow. Back to Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now I'm going to stop reading there for a few moments and let's dig in just a little bit. We need to understand something of Joseph's crisis. And in order to do that, we need to kind of lock in on what this betrothed means. Now, our tendency, and matter of fact, you may hear people from time to time in our day and age, try to relate this to being engaged, where a guy and a girl together make a decision, we're going to get married. Now, that approaches what we find in first century Jewish life. This betrothal, though, is more than just Two kids who come together or two people who come together and decide they're going to get married. It is, in fact, a very legal process. This is the individual. Now, you got to understand in first century Jewish life, often the marriages were arranged. Now, the girl would have some kind of say in it in most circumstances. But the father would be the one who could pull the trigger and say, okay, this is going to happen. These are going to get married. Well, that presents a little bit of an issue, especially if you happen to want to get to know the person you're going to be marrying. And so the difference is that they don't decide they're going to get married. Somebody else makes the decision. It comes forward. They said that we're going to go through a betrothal process where this man and this woman now will legally be together, but not married Okay, so basically what that means is for a year's period of time, most of the time, could have been shorter, not very often, couldn't really have been longer without some penalty to it, but these two people would come together in a legal and moral union with one another. At the end of a year's time, if they weren't married already, then the guy had to pay the expenses for the girl as if they were married. Now, the question is, why would they wait a year? Why such a big deal about this? Several things come to the surface here, which really help to shed light on what's going on and why this is a crisis for Joseph. One of the reasons that they would have this year's waiting time, but yet still be legally together, uh, was a practical one. There was a bride price that had to be paid by the husband to the other person. There was also a dowry that had to be paid by the wife's family to the husband. And so sometimes it took them time to get that together. And they also had to uh, you know, make preparations for the wedding, which was a big, huge affair. Uh, 
not unlike ours these days, except theirs were about a week long. So that's kind of part of the process. But the main part of it, the reason they wanted to wait a year, was because the integrity, the chastity of the bride had to be proven. If during that one-year period there was any reason to believe that she was unchaste, that she was not pure, then the husband or the guy who was betrothed to her could go through a legal divorce process. It was not something as simple as saying, you know what, let's just don't get married, the engagement is off. It was a legal union, therefore it had to be a legal dissolving of the union. Now that could be done in several different ways. It could be a huge scene. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the Old Testament law, the price for a bride who was unchaste in a situation like this was that she would be killed for being that way. But by this time in Jewish life, first century Palestine, uh, they had decided that was a little bit harsh. And so the rabbis taught that she could be divorced according to the law of Moses, as we've seen before, as we've talked about divorce in this day. Uh, and so they could go through that process. But it was a legal process, and that's important for us to remember if we come to Joseph now. With that background, let's come back to this passage and notice a couple of things. First of all, I want you to think, if you put yourself into this situation, or let's take you out of it, but let's put modern society in America into this. If a male in this day and age were to be in this situation and find out that the one to whom he was betrothed had been unfaithful to him and was carrying someone else's child, how do you suppose he would handle that? Well, I can tell you because through the years I've dealt with many, many people in many, many different situations. And there would be some where the guy would say to her, hey, you need to have an abortion. And that happens on a regular basis. But other guys would say to her, hey, you've offended me, you've betrayed me, and now I'm going to make you pay. And then he summarily begins to drag her and her reputation through the dirt. Now there's other responses and other ways that people deal with this. I want us to stop for a minute though and really lock in on this crisis for Joseph. Notice what his intent is. Back to verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Basically what this means is that Joseph decided that rather some big trial, if you will, some big public scene where Mary is put on display in front of the people and the elders of that place... He would just take her with, according to the law, and just two people came in as witnesses and he would dissolve their union. That says something about him. It underscores the truth that we started with here. When we face a crisis, it reveals something of our character in the way we respond to that. Scripture tells us that Joseph was a just man. That means that in the eyes of the law, he was righteous. He did what he could to follow the law and the teachings of it. It says something about Joseph in this particular case. And the point then 
is extended into his life, as we see in verse 19, there's still a part of him that is looking out for himself. We all tend to do that. I'll get to that in just a few moments. But as Joseph faces this situation, there's a part of this where he's looking out for himself, saying, wait a minute, my betrothed one has been unfaithful, therefore she's on her own at this point. But that part of him, the faith part of him, the character part of him that's looking out for her, and by the way, it tells us something of his care for her also. That part of him says, let's don't make an issue. Don't make a scene. Let's be careful with this. Here's what I think that teaches us. Before we ever get to the rest of it, this part of the crisis and how Joseph handles it leads me to say this to us. We need to be very careful how we handle people who fail. I want that to sink in. Matter of fact, what I really would like is for all of us to just jump into that pool and roll around in it for a while. Some of the most hateful, vengeful, condemning kind of people are church people. I don't get that. I don't get that because the reality of life is that all of us fail. All of us fail. There's not a person in here who comes in with the whole package and everything's in place. We're all standing in need of grace. We've talked about that numerous times from this pulpit in this hour. And as we come to this today, I think it's a good place for us to, to just stop for a minute and settle into that. Joseph teaches us something here that even though from his side of things she's failed him, he still handles her carefully. How do you handle people who fail? Is it that looking down your nose kind of thing? You know that statement that's unfortunately made the rounds through the times and there's enough truth into it that it just kind of has legs through one generation to the next. The church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. How tragic is that? Be careful how you handle people who fail around you. And see, that provides us our own little crisis. So when we come up against somebody, especially a loved one who lets us down, makes bad choices for whatever reason, how do we deal with those people? Well, the answer to that is we deal with them from who we are. That's the character part of this. And sometimes our character part of this is so overwhelming to us that we don't even get to the faith part of that. Or maybe better said, it just reveals that our faith is a whole different character for us. I used to do this with teenagers when I worked with them. Take an orange and cut a little hole in the bottom of it and say, now if I squeeze this orange, what comes out of it? You know what their answer typically was? Orange juice. You know what's wrong with that? It's possible for somebody to cut the edge off of the orange, waller it out. Is waller a good word? Huh? You understood, you understood what I meant? All right. So to cut out all the insides and put molasses in there, and then if you squeeze it, what are you going to get? Molasses. You know, the truth of the matter is that you're going to get out of it when you squeeze it, whatever's in it. Now, crisis has that effect on us. 
When we come up against something that stretches us beyond our normal abilities to handle, what comes out of us is what's in us. And when we treat people, especially in a crisis, we treat them as less than God treats them, something about us is not right. Let's take another step here. The fact is, nothing reveals our character or our faith like a crisis does. And so you might ask yourself then, as you go through the things that you go through, here's a great question for you to ask. Where's God in this situation? But here's a follow-up statement that I want you to put with that. This is a test. Let's step back for a second. Let's take a crisis in your life. I got a phone call the other day. I'm not going to go into this. I just got a phone call the other day. My daughter's on the other end. And she's crying. So I said, suck it up. We don't cry. I didn't say that. Okay. Now, there are people in my family who would have said that. Okay. What does that reveal about character? See what I'm saying? So in this, she was in a crisis. Okay. And so what comes out of me in that scenario? And the answer is, what's in me comes out. Now, you can deal with her whether or not it was nice or not what came out of me. The reality is nothing reveals our character like a crisis. And so when you find yourself in a crisis, one of the first things that ought to come to your mind is this statement. This is a test. If you believe... That God is sovereign. In other words, he's in charge. If you really believe that, and you really believe that other verse of scripture that we like to quote, and God will put nothing on, this is paraphrased by the way, God will put nothing on us that takes us beyond our ability to handle with his sake, or with his help. If you really believe those things, then you have to look at that crisis as a test. How you respond to it is going to tell you something about you and what you believe. So where's God in the crisis? If you're here today and you're facing a crisis, where's God in that? And I know you're sitting there going, that's exactly my question. Where is God in this? Well, there's the test part of it for you. Now let's take another step. Okay, so that's a crisis that he faces Joseph faces right away that we tie into. Now let's look at the directives that he gets because now another crisis is introduced for him. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, what are these things? He has a betrothed wife who is unfaithful, or at least it appears that way. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, And unwilling to put her away or to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, let me stop for a second. 
And let's, let's, let's slow this way down again. One of the problems that we run into with a Christmas story is we've heard it so many times and we've read over it so many times that we just skim right across the top of it and we fail to dig in and find real helpful stuff. I want you to, as best you can, put yourself in Joseph's shoes here. And remember, we have the benefit of looking backwards through history We see the end of the story and we see all the way through Jesus' life events and all the way back to the birth, all the way back to this event. But as best you can, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Joseph has a crisis on his hands. What am I going to do about my life? It's not what I planned at this point. So he goes to sleep. And in sleep, what happens? An angel of the Lord appeared to him. Okay, let me stop for a second. I want to try to short-circuit a bunch of counseling over the next week, okay? Just because you had a dream doesn't mean it was God talking to you in the dream, okay? It could have just been bad pizza that you ate yesterday, all right? But, but it might just be that God's speaking to you in a dream. So let's put yourself back in Joseph's shoes. He's got this crisis on his hands, and now... He goes to sleep and an angel of the Lord appears to him in this dream. And what's the message? Don't fear to take Mary as your wife. All right, well, that kind of deals with the crisis if you just leave it there. But here's the next statement. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a second. Now, our Catholic friends have helped us By attaching a name to this. The Immaculate Conception. You know what that means? It means this don't happen every day. It means this is brand new stuff. With me? So how do you, in Joseph's shoes, process that information? Your girl is pregnant. Don't worry, Joseph. It's not your deal. Well, Joseph knew it wasn't his deal. That wasn't an issue for him. Right? Hello? So the message is, this is a God thing. The Holy Spirit is behind this. Just stop for a second and let that sink in. Is your faith big enough to accept that message? (laughs) I got to be honest. If this is me in that situation, first of all, the dream part of it throws me off. All right? That's just a dream. Okay? Especially with something as crazy as that sounds. And a virgin will be with child? Seriously? You see, now Joseph has a crisis of faith. Before, it's a crisis of circumstance. Now it's a crisis of faith. He has a word from God, and the question is, will he believe it? So let's stop there for a second. What do you suppose God knows that you don't? That's a dumb question, isn't it? Well, no, but I want you to process it for just a second. Because... When God tells us stuff that we already know, it doesn't require faith for that. Hello? 
When God stretches me, it's when he's telling me stuff about my life and about the stuff that needs to happen next that I don't get. That's when my faith goes, I don't know, maybe that's bad pizza. Joseph finds himself right square in the middle of a crisis of faith. I've heard from God, what will I do with it? How about you today? Is it possible that the crisis that you brought in here with you today has in all of its complexities, has a stamp of God saying, I want to take you to a new place in your faith. Is your faith large enough to handle that? Notice I didn't say strong enough, okay? A lot of the garbage that you hear on TV, some of these guys on TV, they say, is your faith strong enough? I'm not it's, not, it's not a humanistic thing here. Is it large enough for you to take God at his word when it makes no sense? I'll tell you something, that's where the Christian life is lived. That is the cutting edge of living the Christian life. But we hate living on the cutting edge because somebody always gets cut. And it's usually us. And so we opt for a nice, simple, threatless Christianity where we have our little doctrines lined up and we have our little behaviors lined up and we know what we do and what we don't do. And we just settle into that. And all the stuff that I've been talking about over the last number of weeks about listening to God and intimacy with God. You see, you can't live out there on the cutting edge of faith if you're not hearing from God. So God, at work in a complex way, what I mean by that is we always get in those situations and we think and we hear, uh, you know, God, what are you trying to teach me through this? Well, I'm sure that God is trying to teach me something through my crisis, but God's much more complex than that. I'm worried about what he's teaching me and he's teaching thousands of people out of those same circumstances. We personalize the crisis if we're not careful and we totally miss The message that God has. What if Joseph, in hearing this, would have woken up the next morning and said, Boy, that was some kind of pepperoni dream I had last night. But i got to get to a divorce this morning. Where's your faith? When God wants to show up in your life in the negative places, where's your faith? Verse 24 and 25, we find Joseph's response, and it also stretches us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. (laughs) Time out. But wait a minute. Aren't people going to put together the math on this? Isn't somebody going to figure out that we've only been married eight months And we already have a baby. You notice Joseph doesn't worry about any of that stuff. He doesn't try to pick the crisis apart. You know why? Because he has the word of God. And he's been driven to a crisis of faith. And his response is obedience. Oh man, oh man. See, that's where Christian living gets tough. When God speaks, 
regardless of the circumstances or the apparent, uh, um, apparent implications. It calls for obedience. Joseph is no bit player in this whole thing. And fortunately, in our Christmas uh, spin-up where we do plays and all that kind of stuff, we give Joseph a prominent part. He's the guy who stands at the back and pays for everything. He's also the last to know. He's just like every other husband in the world. Not so. Joseph shows me just how weak I can be. I'm very impressed with the way Joseph handles the crisis of his life. The crisis of circumstance, the crisis of faith, and the response of obedience. Before I ever get to Herod, he's next. How are you doing with Joseph? Another way for me to ask that is as you look at the crises of your life today, or maybe if you're not going through one today, look backwards at those. How did you handle those things? How does your faith come to work for that? If it's just quoting stuff and holding it out there and it's just wishful thinking, well, that's probably better than just cratering underneath the crisis. But God wants to take you through that crisis and in the process, enlarge your ability to trust Him. And Joseph stands at this seminal point of history, this turning point as we go forward. And he serves as a reminder to all of us that God is interested in the details for us as much as the big stuff. So let's look at Herod now. If you don't like Joseph, you'll probably like Herod a lot better. Look at uh, chapter 2 now, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child and When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose uh, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and dark, uh, departed to Egypt. and Remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. What do you make of that? This guy, Herod, well, he was known as Herod the Great and we need to give him his due. He was known as Herod the Great because of the incredible building projects that he did across that part of the world. He was not a Jew by birth, most scholars will tell us. He was Idumean, which comes from Edom, which is down on the other side of the Dead Sea. You can read your Old Testament to see the lineage of those kind of people. Uh, But he also had an affinity towards the Jewish people. He was known as Herod the Great, as I've already said. He was a king over that area, but he was a puppet king answering to Caesar. Now, one of the things that we know about Herod was that he was politically savvy. He made incredible mistakes in his political life, and yet he always seemed to land on his feet. He went, uh, he came about roughly in the time of Julius Caesar, and then through Mark Antony and had dealings with Cleopatra, and then when Octavian became Caesar, he is also Caesar Augustus that we find in the Christmas story, and Herod tied in with Augustus to the point that he became the Roman Empire's emissary, if you will, for Roman culture in Palestine as we know it today. He was a king's king. He ruled well. Most of his life, the people of Israel in that area that we know of Israel today, uh, were tied to him. He tried to do things that would allow them to worship according to the way they felt. He even let them believe that he kind of was part of that. He helped build the, uh, the temple we know as Herod's temple that surpassed the glory of Solomon's temple. And he did that for the Jewish people. And he ruled them in such a way that uh, they didn't like him like him, but they couldn't hate him some of the time. But there's another part of Herod, and this is where the crisis comes in as we find it there. By the time Herod finishes his reign, and he was in his 70s, early 70s, I think, when he finally died. And now he's in that last part of his life, the last handful of years, when we find this story that we just read. And it was in those years that the great building projects were done. And most of his empire, if you will, was settled and under control And paranoia began to set in with him. He had several sons. He had a couple of different wives. His favorite wife he had executed because of the way he felt like she was manipulating the situation. Had three of his sons done the same way. It's not that much of a stretch then for us to see that this same Herod says to his people, go to Bethlehem and kill all of those children, two years, all the males, two years and under in that area. Because there was a crisis brewing for him. His crisis was situational also. But it was also a faith crisis. His crisis was tied to a turf war. Who would rule? Who would be in charge? By the way, that's our problem. That's our crisis day in and day out. He... he, 
responds to the threat in a very Herodian kind of way, and he goes in there and cleans house. A turf war. Who's going to be God here? I'm convinced that's the battle we all fight today. Our turf war. And like Bethlehem, it becomes the place of bloody lives. I was reading an article in a journal this week about a pastor who went over to Bethlehem, the Holy Land, to do some research, and particularly to Bethlehem to do some research. And so, uh, and these tour buses come and go all day long over there. We, when Teresa and I had the chance to go to, uh, to Israel, we didn't get to go to Bethlehem. Our Israeli guide said it's just too uh, volatile over there. You, there's a chance that you know, a bomb could go off. It's under Palestinian control. So we stood at the shepherd's field and looked across just about a mile or so to where Bethlehem was and had to kind of fill in the blanks in our imagination. This pastor went all the way over. And he went and he kind of hung out all day long doing the research that he was doing outside of the Church of the Nativity. And tourists came in day in, I mean all day long, busload after busload. And he said that as he sat out there and took notes and did those kind of things, he watched those Palestinian uh, street vendors as they made a haul off of the tourists who were there. And he said while he was out there, he was thinking of that day and that night of the birth of the Savior and those angels who said, peace on earth, goodwill to men, you know, all of those kinds of things. And he was caught up in the glory of Bethlehem. When all of a sudden he said he heard a commotion and he looked off to the side and he saw he began to see this cloud of white smoke as it began to filter into the area where they were. And when that white smoke got to him, it began to burn his eyes and he realized that it was tear gas and there had been some kind of an uprising just on the block next to them. And so all of those people in that area rushed into shops and stuff in that area so that they could escape the turmoil that was coming. He said he was, while he was in there, he was processing through this. How could something like this happen at this place that represents peace on earth? How could there be discord among men at this place where the Savior was born? How could that happen? And he said, just like that, his mind went to this passage of Scripture. In that same place where Jesus was born, not too many days or months later, Herod comes in with a sword and annihilates people. It is a crisis of faith. Who will be in charge? Who will rule Bethlehem? Will it be the Jews? Will it be the Palestinians? Who will rule Israel? Will it be Herod or will it be this new king that he knows nothing about? And Herod's answer is, over my dead body will anybody else rule? That's us. That's us. Every day we fight the battle who will rule? I had a friend who used to use this example. I think he's right on target with it. He says, picture your life as a house. You have different elements of your life, your house. So you have that professional part of you, and so that represents one room. And uh, You have the hobby part of your life, and that represents the game room. And 
you have your family life that may be the kitchen and uh, you know you have all of these different rooms that represent different aspects of your life. You have a TV room, you have a computer room, an office where you work at home and so pay the bills, that kind of stuff, and so maybe that represents the money part of your life. All these different rooms and your life is spread out all over those kind of things. And he said, and so when we come to understand Jesus and his claims on us, the picture we need is that Jesus comes into that house and he lays claim to the entire house. But we don't like that with him. Oh, sure, you can have the part of my life that uh, I'm willing to give you. But, you know, this room over here, my, my hobby room, you can't go in there. Matter of fact, Jesus, I don't think you'd like what you'd see, so we're just going to lock that one down and you can't go in there. It's turf war. Or, I don't really want you to get involved in my finances, so I'm going to lock the office door so you can't get in there. It's a turf war. I don't really want you to see what I'm looking at on the internet, so I'm going to lock that door and it's a turf war. I know that I don't treat my wife the way scripture tells me to, uh, but I'm going to keep that up. So I'm going to lock the bedroom door and you can't go in there. And we're willing to say to him, you can have every room in the house except the one that I keep locked. And it's a turf war. And we're Herod all over again. It is the crisis of our lives. Now, that's not to downplay the other stuff that we go through because, I, you know, in our church, we have people going through stuff. If it's not you today, it's going to be. So just hang on. Those crises are not uh, downplayed, diminished at all by saying that the crisis of our lives is who's going to be in control. Joseph and Herod. Two guys, a carpenter and a king. You'd never expect their lives to come together to cross paths. But we find them at a stable in an insignificant town, history would say. And this little infant is causing a world of problems and he's not even there yet. And he pushes us to the same crisis, a crisis of faith. What will I do with that? Every one of us today faces a crisis of some sort. My question to you is, where's your faith? Let's pray. And so, Father, again, we open your word and it lays, lays us open. Exposes our hearts and our minds. And I'm grateful that it exposes your love. We get right down to it. We recognize that the reason for these crises we find in these two guys is because you were intent on giving us victory through the crises of life. We thank you. As we look at these people, Father, we don't want to lose sight of the reason for Christmas in the first place. We thank you so much that into the problems that are our lives, you stepped in with love and grace and mercy and power 
and wisdom and purpose and joy. We do incredible work and we are so grateful for that because we are so needy. Seems that everything we touch is marred by sin. It's less than what you make it to be. And so we're grateful today that we can step right into grace and see that you pull us to yourself. And especially in those times that we find ourselves at our wits end and our strengths end and we don't know how we could possibly go another day. And you give us what we need. So we pray right now in the lives of these, your people, who are gathered here, many of whom are going through incredible, difficult times in their lives. Show yourself to be real. Give them what they need to place their faith in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.